This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. You're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, and this week I am in conversation with Matthew Bocock and Kath Dovey, who are both here representing the Beacon Collaborative. Uh, Now, the Beacon Collaborative is an initiative that's been around for a few years here in the UK, and it sort of aims to bring together people who have um, a shared interest in developing the culture of philanthropy in the UK, particularly kind of focused on high net worths and wealthier individuals, and trying to sort of bring together organisations who have a view on, you know, what's missing in the marketplace uh, in terms of encouraging people to give and to give more to help them to do so it's all sort of bringing together kind of wealth advisors um, people on the foundation side people on the fundraising side charities and and others and they do research kind of looking at what's going on in terms of trends uh, around uh, high net worth giving and also trying to kind of bring people together around kind of actions and shared principles to see if we can get some some sort of movement on on improving the the landscape for um, uh, for giving and philanthropy here in the UK. And Matthew and and Kath and I had a really interesting chat. We sort of talked about what some of the key trends are here in the UK um, and sort of what's specific about the culture of giving in the UK as it stands uh, and sort of what might be missing by comparison with with some other places. And we talked a bit about what some of the key drivers for wealthier people to give are uh, and also some of the key barriers that have been identified through their research uh, and through other bits of research that are out there. We talked quite a bit about the specific context around the coronavirus pandemic, understandably, um, and sort of what had potentially changed for philanthropy in terms of funding practices and the approach of philanthropists, um, the extent to which philanthropy had sort of stepped up to the mark in response to the crisis, um, and what that might mean for sort of perceptions of philanthropy, and uh, had a chat about what it might mean for philanthropy going forward from here, and whether there would be kind of longer term changes um, in the way that uh, in the the types of people who are giving but also in the the nature of what they're giving to and how they give um so without further ado let's go into it hope you enjoy the chat um and as ever i'll be back at the end uh with uh, a few bits of housekeeping and tidying up okay great uh so i'm here with uh matthew bocock and Kath dovey hi there both of you hi roderick hi roderick um, and Matthew and Kath are both involved in the Beacon Collaborative, which is uh, an initiative here in the UK to try and bring together organisations with a shared interest in philanthropy to try and build more of a culture of, of giving here in, in the UK. Um, we're going to talk quite a lot about work you've been doing, research and, and sort of across the network in response to what's been happening around the COVID pandemic. But maybe the, the place to start would be just for you to say a bit in your own words about what the Beacon Collaborative is and how it came about. Okay, I'll answer that. Um, I think there are many people in the UK who believe that there is insufficient giving by the wealthy. And a lot of philanthropists, if you ask them, are actually quite disappointed by by their peers, by how few of their peers are really engaged. And there are numerous stories that you hear from people 
about attempting to engage people in giving and philanthropy and being very disappointed. At the same time, we've actually had a considerable accumulation of wealth in a small number of hands as, as a result of a fairly successful free market economy for quite a number of years. But it's not necessarily been accompanied by a social contract, a sense of obligation that you have to give something back. And I think it varies by, you know, in other countries, it's different. But in the UK, I wonder whether we haven't forgotten a little bit that social contract. So Beacon was a philanthropist-led movement which sets out to understand the causes of the lower levels of engagement by philanthropists and the levels of philanthropic giving, to encourage the development of a working, effective ecosystem to support philanthropists, and also to provide a voice for philanthropists, because often we see forums which are convened to talk about giving and philanthropy, but they're all organizations who participate and there are virtually no philanthropists in the room. So sometimes it's necessary for philanthropists who don't, of course, normally group together, so they don't logically provide a voice, but sometimes what their interests are need to be, need to be uh, spoken, need to be heard. I think um, in, in thinking about what we're trying to do, I certainly differentiate between charitable giving and philanthropy. Not everybody agrees with me on this, but I feel that charitable giving is essentially tactical and responsive, as opposed to philanthropy, which is intended to be strategic. So it implies some sort of level of engagement in the issues and some follow up. So what we're focusing on very much is not the whole spectrum of giving, but very much the philanthropic giving by those that have assets that they could contribute for the public good. I suppose it leads me on to saying that philanthropy is a bit of a problematic word and we do have an awful lot of semantic discussions about it because it means different things to different people. And to some people it, may, it includes everybody who volunteers, going back to the original meeting of love of fellow man. But in this context, I like to think of it as private assets for public good because that includes social investment, but it also includes using all the assets you've got, such as your networks, your skills, your experience, your expertise, you know, to quote that well-worn phrase, time, talent and treasure. Absolutely. And, and I don't know, Kath, if you just want to, to say a bit there about what the focus of some of the, the research work that's been done so far um, through Beacon has been. Yes, of course. I mean, picking up on, on what Matthew's saying, um, you know, Beacon is about trying to change the culture of giving amongst those who can have the capacity to give the most. Um, what we believe is that there's no single intervention that's going to achieve that. So we have been working across a number of different activities to try and uh, change the culture and, and strengthen the ecosystem to make it more welcoming to people who may be giving for the first time. So the, the projects that we've been doing cover a, a wide uh, spectrum of activities from um, peer influence uh, through to uh, professional services, uh, public awareness, political engagement, and we're also looking at doing more sort of measurement uh, and research around some of the trends that we're seeing so that we can really tell whether or not we're moving the needle. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's all sorts of interesting things. And, you know, I should, full disclosure, I've, I've been involved in a number of your uh, kind of events in the past in those conversations with philanthropists and people advising them and people and organisations sort of in receipt of philanthropy. And they've been really interesting. I guess, uh, you know, what might be interesting to sort of take the, the conversation we're having now uh, in, in an, a different direction to think about 
you know, obviously in, in the last few months, um, everything's changed uh, for, for a lot of organizations and people. And I'm sure that goes for a lot of the philanthropists that you've been working with. So how has that kind of affected the sorts of themes that you were looking at? And what, what do you think the, the impact so far on philanthropy has been of the, the COVID pandemic? I think, interestingly, it's created a moment in time. Um, I think I mean, there's been data put out today by Pro Bono Economics that says we're now looking at a £10 billion funding gap for the, the charitable sector between now and the end of the year. Um, you know, £10 billion is an enormous amount of money to try and uh, and uh, and, and fill. I, I, I don't think that the role of philanthropy is to fill that. I think we have to understand the role of philanthropy is to support organisations, coming back to Matthew's definition of philanthropy being around the strategic uh, vision rather than the tactical implementation. And I think, you know, understanding that the, there is a role for philanthropy in this current crisis is, is very important. And understanding that, you know, philanthropic capital can help organisations to adapt. It can help them to face the future. It can operate at a local level. Um, but it's not there fundamentally to fill the funding gap. So the sorts of activities we've seen, and I think it's important to stress that this is really among experienced philanthropists. You know, there are a number of well-known names and individuals who've stepped forward and, and been quite public about what they're doing uh, with the, the view really to engage others and to just raise this issue onto the agenda of others who haven't perhaps given before. We've also seen a number of philanthropists recognising that this uh, crisis will be at a national scale with uh, with a different impact in different regions and indeed even in different local communities. So a number have really been focusing on local initiatives and how they can support and align local funding. We've seen innovation. Uh, a recognition that we're going to need initiatives that enable nimble collaboration and a number of philanthropists have put um, some early seed capital into various platforms to try and enable some of that collaboration. And then we've seen quite a lot of uh, initiatives around leverage. So whether that's matched funding, co-funding, you know, coming in and working alongside others. I think going forward, what we're expecting, um, and, and there's an expectation this crisis will have three phases, and it's been widely talked about. We've got a relief phase, you know, in these initial weeks that we're possibly coming towards the end of moving into a recovery phase and then on into resilience, where we look at how we might build back better um, to make sure that, uh, you know, that the, the future of the charitable sector looks, you know, better than the past as a consequence of that. And I think there is an expectation that quite a lot of new funders are more likely to come into this recovery and resilience phase where we're likely to need continuous funding for a significant period of time. Yeah, that's I mean, that's all I think fascinating and definitely kind of goes to, to a lot of what I've been hearing in, in other conversations. Um, I mean, certainly in, in terms of uh, the recognition of the scale of the challenges facing the sector. I know this is this is something when I had um, uh, Fran and Will Perrin on, who I know, I know have been involved in in Beacon. Um, you know, they were very much making a strong call to say that they were stepping up significantly the amount of annual expenditure they were making out of their foundation, and they're kind of calling on others to do the same. And I know there's been uh, similar kind of peer led efforts in in the US. What's your sense so far amongst the the philanthropists that you've been talking to of kind of how widely that is? appreciated and and kind of the extent to which uh people have been kind of digging deeper in their philanthropy in response to to the need 
I think this is a, a sort of phased response. So Fran and Will were very early in, in their public announcements around their philanthropy. And I would say very strongly a part of the movement of saying, you know, this is the time for people to give and to give more. Um, and certainly, um, you know, giving is continuing to, to come in and is, it is continuing to grow. I think for many philanthropists um, who have perhaps had business interests as, as well as, um, you know, their philanthropic activities, you know, those first few weeks for many people were really around reorganising their lives. You know, that goes right across society and uh, reorganising businesses, reorganising lives, and then starting to think about how can they respond? How can they use their resources wisely in, in a crisis situation like that? And I know a huge amount of thought has been going into that by by experienced philanthropists but interestingly uh, we're getting quite a lot of reports of new people new philanthropists saying i'd like to help it's not so much the question which we've heard in the past which is i'd like to put this money aside uh, and i'd want to do some good work with it it's just simply how can i help and they're looking for those ways that they can contribute matthew i'm sure you you will have personal experience you can draw on here as well well, well i think there are a couple of comments on that. I think that we don't actually know yet how much of the giving that's been taking place is going to be substitute or incremental. Because I think there will be some diversion from other areas and other causes. And we won't know till probably later in the year or when we've surveyed a certain amount, how much is additional giving that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And of course, how much of it is additional giving by people who are already active, generous philanthropists, and how much is by new philanthropists coming to coming to giving maybe in a serious way for the first time. So it's going to be quite difficult to get that data, but it'll take a period of time. I think also, as people shift from relief to recovery and then resilience, we're going to see philanthropists being presented with some really hard decisions about many of them, of course, um, back multiple different charities. And they're going to have to pick winners. If you accept that not all are going to survive, some of them they'll have to double down on. I know one major philanthropist who gives to a very, in a very major way to about six organizations a year. She's decided she's going to pick two and really support them actively in their recovery, possibly at the expense of the others. So some very hard decisions I think will have to be made over the next six months or so about who the winners are going to be. It also begs a question about whether you allow natural selection to simply decide who the winners are or whether philanthropists and trustees and others are proactive in trying to bring together organizations with overlap so that they can fund two charities to merge into one or to collaborate more about delivery of their services. So I think we're going to see much more collaboration and hopefully that would lead to more efficiency in the sector because I think a lot of people feel that if we were going to design a charity sector and a civil society, we wouldn't start from where we are now. No, absolutely not. That's really interesting. It goes to a conversation I was having with somebody yesterday about the question of, of merger because um, it, it feels as though, as you say, the situation is such that realistically, not all organisations in the charity sector are going to survive it and certainly not in their, their current form. And one route out of that might be consolidation and merger. But obviously, it's a sort of fraught issue. Uh, and the question of who actually drives those mergers. Um, and I think your point there about philanthropists taking a kind of proactive or strategic role in 
in looking for those opportunities for mergers and supporting it is really interesting. Have you, is that, are you saying, is that something you've seen philanthropists already kind of working with organizations to, to think through? Absolutely, yes. And there have been a number of examples of collaboration. I think Kath will comment on one or two in a minute where, for example, organizations, funders and philanthropists are sharing due diligence, which is not exactly the same as taking a leadership role in rationalization. But, um, and, and, you know, there's a good question about whether it should be the role of philanthropists and donors to drive organizations to change. But in the same way, um, in the Beacon Collaborative, working with a set of organizational partners, which you might, you might describe as the philanthropy ecosystem, the support mechanisms, um, we've very much taken the role of saying, um, suppress your competitive instincts so that you can focus entirely on the mission. And in many cases, there's very little overlap between organization when you ask what is your primary mission versus what's your secondary activity. And the competition's in the secondary activity, not in the primary mission. And so there's a lot of opportunity to bring organizations together to focus on delivery of their mission as opposed to survival of the organization at all, at all costs. So I think sometimes philanthropists and funders can ask, the, can ask those hard questions and encourage the boards to examine themselves. It's not actually the role of the donors to drive that change. It has to be the role of the organisations to choose that change. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say one of the most um, uh, even exciting, maybe, it may not be the right word to use, but you know, one of the most interesting things that's kind of emerged from the crisis is the degree to which organizations have come together to collaborate and if you look at them the national emergencies trust and the, the collaboration between the trust with, with the uk community foundations and with the british red Cross to make sure that we can get funding out onto the front line where it's needed or the london community response fund i think they've got more than 50 funders now aligned sharing due diligence doing their best to to fund as many of the projects that they can fund that are coming um you know coming to their door uh, asking for money and I think those two, I mean, they were very early uh, set up uh, during during the early phase of the crisis. But now we're seeing other initiatives coming through in you know, NPC with its interactive data dashboard. It's an extraordinary feat to be able to use data to drill down, you know, on a on a district by district basis to where need is to, to support funders and support local collaboration. Um, or we've got, you know, ACF launching uh, the Funders Collaborative Hub. Again, bringing together not just funders, but the organisations they support, potentially bringing in philanthropists and, you know, others who can add to um, the efforts to make sure that we stabilise the whole of our third sector and consider how we can make sure it's resilient for the future. I mean, these initiatives really are extraordinary when you think how quickly they've been built and brought together. And it's collaboration that's forged that. I was just going to say it touches as well on a concern that I've always had, and it's backed up by some of the research data, which is that people struggle to get into philanthropy, to find their way in, whether it's whether it's professional wealth advisors or it's individuals. That there are probably a lot more people who are essentially empathetic, who would like to be engaged in philanthropy, than find their way in and actually end up doing it. And that's the latent group we want to address and bring to philanthropy. But it's almost a dysfunctional marketplace. You know, there's a low level of trust often between donors and charities as, as, as uncovered in our research recently, but also there's very little use of data. 
Now, there are a whole number of very exciting initiatives going on, like 360 Giving, Brevio by Marcel Speller, uh, a number of others, which are all setting out to say we need better information and better information sharing. And I'd like to think that in the next 12 months, there's going to be some hard thinking about how we make information available by interconnecting many of these systems so that we get a functioning marketplace using data and systems effectively. It's rather like the, 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 the stock market in the 1990s was a very imperfect sort of market because there were so many patches of data that were all, none of which were connected to each other. But it's very different now. So I think there's real opportunity for much better use of technology to make this work much better, and make it much more accessible to people. I, I absolutely agree. And I, I think on both the collaboration and the, the data front, this does, those two do team, seem to be two areas in which sort of short term changes through necessity are happening that are, that are incredible, really, and could potentially have huge longer term benefits. Um, on both of those, I, I wanted to, to ask, actually, going to the question, I think what you were saying there, Matthew, about how sometimes new donors struggle to, to get into philanthropy. As you were saying that, I was thinking, uh, actually, at this time of crisis, I think you're right that the awareness of that need is there. So perhaps people who otherwise might not have been thinking about giving are thinking about doing that. And, and they're faced with those usual challenges that philanthropists have in terms of actually being able to find data on where to give or to sort of know how to, to start. And things like the National Emergencies Trust are providing perhaps an easy way in because it's a sort of centralized place where you can go and know that you can put your money in and that will kind of uh, get down to where it needs to to address the, the problem that you're concerned about. I guess what I wonder is looking to the longer term, is there a route from that towards people who for whom that's the start kind of developing their own philanthropy because it strikes me that in the short term that kind of thing might be pragmatic but actually most donors in the end want to have some sense of kind of finding their own philanthropic feet and doing their own thing and actually a kind of centralized pool is probably not going to keep them interested over the long term so do you think we need to think about how we kind of take people from that starting point to to, to a different uh, kind of longer term position. Uh, absolutely, because I always worry about, in a sense, people being intermediated out. And I mean, we know if we want to encourage greater philanthropy, it's not going to be by saying, this is a duty, this is an obligation. You, you know, it's like paying your taxes, you should be doing it, you must do it. This is something we want to promote as a rewarding, as a rewarding way of life. And so that Im implies that therefore you've got real engagement with the cause and the changes that are being you know, reaped with your money. So um, I think that's very difficult to do with pooled central funds. So um, the question will be, how do we pick up those people and how do their advisors and the whole community pick up those people who have given to something like National Emergency Trust and say, well, in your area, here's the way some of the money was used. Would you like to come and visit what they're doing? And that might lead to a donor-advised fund. And that then might lead on to much greater engagement. And um, Kath might like to comment on some of the research. We're just starting to dig into data about ways in which when people become a volunteer and a trustee for the organization, it increases their level of giving. So we do need to engage out of this somehow. I think I'd just add to that. I mean, again, I think that the National Emergencies Trust, what it's achieving is is extraordinary. 
But um, alongside that, you know, the UK Community Foundations have got funds open across the UK where they are doing that connecting work in the local communities to make sure that people who are stepping forward and saying, how can I help, have got that access point within their community. And, you know, I think an initiative like the London Community Response Fund, where there's an, a proactive sharing of due diligence to reduce the burden on the end organisation and enable the collaboration between funders has got, you know, huge potential for um, being extended out to philanthropists as well you know once due diligence is done it, it provides some assurance that a project has been verified by uh, you know someone who has an expert skill set in that area if that knowledge can be shared then it provides a resource to bring in philanthropists more directly into the effort than they might get through a through a pooled fund so I think you know w- one of the things that we're seeing through this is a real examination of how we can use the component capabilities that we've got to to start that process of engagement for people who may never have given before. I think it would be a shame if um, you know that that energy and that interest gets lost um, because we we are seeing the collaboration that could forge a new way of getting uh, donors to access giving for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. I do you, on, on that that question just to, to to sort of finish this thought about about collaboration. Do you have any sense of what infrastructure might be required, or whether it even is infrastructure in the sense of a, a new, you know, actual kind of new organisation or, or anything like that to enable that collaboration to continue beyond some of the sort of short term partnerships that that we've seen emerging, uh, and actually kind of take that forward and and make. Collaboration and coordination more a part of of the culture of philanthropy over the longer term. Well, I think what's really interesting there, Rodri, is that we're already seeing emerging some of the components. You know, whether that's technology platforms that people can fund over, or whether, as Matthew's mentioned, you know, three hundred and sixty giving or Brevio. Um, you know, these are components of a of a potentially larger solution. Um, you know, COVID Action Net is another um, platform that has emerged that is sharing information and knowledge and insight on a curated basis. That one's global. Um, so that people can get the, the insight that they need to make good decisions. If you bring that together with some of the funding platforms, with some of the due diligence platforms, with some of the data monitoring platforms, um, you've got the components that are a very powerful tool that would enable people to to put their money to work alongside that of others, you know, effectively collaborative platforms. So yes, there's quite a bit of thinking that's starting to happen around that. And I think the, the again, the exciting thing here is that the, that the technology is already there in nascent form. It really is about bringing it together. Kath, can I just say that that of course is, I completely agree with, but it's all around the machine elements. There's the human element as well, because, One of the challenges in philanthropy is it's a very lonely business. There are very, very few philanthropists who actually collaborate with other other individuals, even if it's not co-funding, learning from each other and sharing their experiences. So we're we're in the process of gathering information at the moment about what the appetite is for a fellowship of philanthropists based around local chapters so that people can, can get together One of them might be funding AIDS in Africa, another one might be funding human rights, another one their local community groups, but they share a whole number of challenges and problems. And being able to learn from each other and to be able to bring their their problems and their mistakes to a trusted closed forum, 
I think has real interest. And that gives people a level of confidence. It also becomes an entry point for uh, people who come across others who would like to do more philanthropy to invite them in so that they see this is, this is a community I want to join. I want to be part of this. So I think that's another sort of infrastructure element that needs to happen. And we're hopeful that that might happen over the next couple of years. We might be able to get that up and going. Absolutely. I think you know, it'll be really interesting to see how, how that takes off. Um, on that, actually, I mean, you mentioned up front in, in talking about the research the, that some of that is around the, um, the barriers that prevent people who aren't already engaged with philanthropy from doing so. And um, from that work or sort of just from, from what you know, I mean, what would, what would you say those key barriers are? I mean, is it, is it just general awareness of there being need out there? Is it, is it sort of awareness of where to give if they feel compelled or is it are there things like concerns that if they do start to, to become a self-identified philanthropist that they'll make themselves a target of, of criticism? I mean, do you have a sense of kind of which of those play most on people's minds? It's interesting. So we did a piece of research um, before uh, the COVID crisis, uh, which collected the views of 1,300 high net worth individuals in the UK. And we asked a whole range of questions around the motivating factors um, as well as the barriers. I mean, I think it's important if you identify barriers, you also identify how to overcome them. Um, and a few key thoughts emerged from that. So you're right, there are a, a multiple range of, of issues that play on people's minds when they think about, you know, the challenges of giving money away. Um, I think at the core of this, actually, though, is the psychology of wealth. I mean, we, I think there's 30 different factors around um, barriers to giving. Among the top 10, six related to personal anxieties, four related to their interactions with charities and one related to the role of the state. And I think, you know, just that, that you know, view from the top 10 gives you a sense of the kind of you know, dialogue that's going on in people's heads when they're thinking about giving money away. What does that mean in terms of actions? I mean, I think for charities, you know, it's really important that they relate to their donors as individuals and understand that these psychological factors are playing on their minds, understanding their hopes as well as their fears uh, and making it uh, you know, easier for them to establish meaningful relationships so that they can help them to overcome some of their anxieties. Um, I think, you know, that is in addition to that kind of psychology, we've also got the external factors. You know, we've got the national discourse on philanthropy, which is not always positive. Um, and it can be incredibly uh, off-putting to people who think if they raise their head above the parapet, you know, they're likely to get it shot off. And I think we, there is a question here about whether we see uh, wealth and philanthropy as being part of, of a solution, part of the solution to some of the challenges that we're facing through COVID. Not, as I say, as a replacement for funding, but as a way of supporting organisations to adapt and to perhaps think about their futures, because, you know, that's really the role that philanthropy can play. Um, we've already touched on the need for knowledge and knowledge networks and sharing and actually enabling, you know, peer to peer support so that people can get the, the input and the support that they need to keep going. And then, of course, another huge component external factor here is, is the availability of, of wealth advice. Um, in the research, we identified that uh, two thirds of people, if they were making a major gift, two thirds of wealthy people would want to seek professional advice. Um, and, you know, are we yet properly established uh, you know with the right service capabilities in the UK to do that 
So it's a complex problem. I suppose this comes back to where we started. You know, the idea behind Beacon was that you tackle um, this kind of complexity through through multiple activities and interactions. And, and really that was supported by the data. Absolutely. And on, on that question of um, the sort of concern about criticism or the discourse about philanthropy, I mean, we, we all know, and I'm sure people listening to the podcast will be very well aware that the last few years have seen quite a sort of wave of, of critique of philanthropy from various quarters, a lot of it coming from the US and quite a bit of that sort of specific to that context. And I think we need to bear that in mind. But but some of it has been taken on board over here. Have you had any sense um, of the way in which the COVID pandemic has has changed that narrative either for the better or worse is it has it generally kind of made people feel more positive towards philanthropy do you think or is it has it actually kind of doubled down on some of that that skepticism I think that's a really interesting question because I think um you have to separate separate out what's happening in the media versus what's happening in the in the policy discourse and I think different views are emerging on on um, the role that philanthropy can play and certainly within the media there have been very mixed messages so I think we've moved from a position where um, you could expect uh, a negative comment is likely to be the, the first the first instinct to one where there's a slightly more mixed reaction and I think that's again quite a, an interesting sign for the future uh, culture of philanthropy in the UK that actually there is the beginnings of a national conversation around what role does this 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 capital have to play in in the reshaping of uh, you know of society that we're going to need over the next few months and years? Matthew, do you have any thoughts on that? I, I, I completely agree. I think this is a time in which philanthropy will be tested. There is always the issue that there is an underlying level of activity that's hidden. And then there's the public discussion about it in the media and in social media and, and even in public policy debates. And they're often disconnected. So one doesn't necessarily inform the other very effectively, which is why you know you will see articles in the press that talk about philanthropy as a tax avoidance mechanism. I mean, if you give away two and a half times the amount of tax that you save, you're not going to get any richer. So it can hardly be tax avoidance, and, which is just based upon a straight sort of ignorance. But in some ways, that's the fault of philanthropy in not educating people, which is why I started off saying one of our roles we expect to be being the voice of philanthropists. And sometimes that's a right to reply. But going that's going off the issue a little bit, because going back to the current COVID crisis, I think we have to get messages out that philanthropy is playing its part and new people are coming to philanthropy, because otherwise there's a very real risk that the perception that wealthy people that own businesses that have taken the furlough scheme uh, or furloughed their, you know, furloughed their cleaners or, you know, staff will become the overriding perception of the role that wealthy people have played. And I think it's important that we address that because we all know that there's a lot going on, which is very different to that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, um, for those for those of us who want to kind of promote a, a healthier culture of, of philanthropy in the UK, I think one of the jobs to do will be to to contextualise it more and to to actually sort of make the case for how it sits alongside you know taxation and people paying an appropriate rate of tax and and kind of the role of the state and and how people make their money through through business and and what kind of um, how the ethics of that balance off against efforts to 
to to do good through philanthropy because i think if if we don't then those are concerns and critiques that will be made from from the outside so i think it's the you know it's incumbent upon you know those of us who are trying to create a positive narrative to engage with them and work out how to answer those critiques um one one thing i wanted to ask actually when when you're saying about sort of things that have that have changed over the short term earlier when we were talking about collaboration it struck me a Another thing that I've um, heard from a, from a lot of people, particularly on the recipient side, that has been cited as a positive, um, and maybe this is sort of primarily to do with foundation philanthropy, but also might relate to individuals, is there's been a real shift in the willingness to move away from kind of programmatic funding or restricted funding to just funding organization, organizational core costs or kind of placing trust in those organizations to, to know what to do with the money. Um, is that something that you've seen and does that kind of relate to, to what you were talking about earlier about one of the issues for philanthropists being, you know, the, a lack of trust in, in charities that they might otherwise give to? Go on, Kath. <laughs> well, I, I mean, certainly, yes, we have seen it. And I think, again, this comes back to where we draw the boundaries around philanthropy. You know, many people who are philanthropists will have you know, foundations and will be very well plugged into what professional funders, you know, the grant making community are doing. And certainly in those quarters, the the move towards unrestricted core cost funding has certainly been evident. I think for new philanthropists who are stepping forward, you know, often, as you said before, they will want to try and make sure that their money goes towards something specific. And I think, you know, this is why we're quite strong on the message that the role of philanthropy is to support organisations to adapt and face the future, because it may be that an organisation needs some money to do a strategic review or to bring in a particular kind of technology now that's going to enable it to operate in the future. Um, is that core cost funding or is that specific project funding? But it is the sort of thing that philanthropists, as individual donors who perhaps don't have that wider capacity of a professionally staffed foundation, it is the sort of work that they can do and, and they are doing. Um, so, yes, we've certainly seen that happening. I, I would also argue that people that are thoughtful and experienced and being involved, being, let's say, quite a way down a philanthropy journey, realise that project-based funding has risks and issues and it's not necessarily the best thing for the recipient organizations so a number of experienced very thoughtful and quite humble philanthropists only give to core costs or if they do give to a project they insist they give something to core costs as well and that's been the case for for a little while uh, so um, I think the current situation has made people much more aware of it particularly because the programs that you might be running are completely inappropriate. And in charities I've been involved in, they're approaching a whole number of donors to say, can we please recategorize the donation or pledge that you've made for general core costs away from the project? Because we can't go ahead with the project right now because we've got to focus on immediate relief. And the vast majority of the donors say yes. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, do, do you think that, I mean, it, again, it seems like one of those changes that we're definitely seeing in the short term by necessity, as you say, because actually the situation means that a lot of things that you might have been doing through a particular program are totally inappropriate and you need to move that money. Do you think the the, the wider ethos or the, the kind of the relationship based fundraising uh, the, uh, funding model might stick over the 
the longer term or do you think there's kind of merit in making an effort to try and build on what's happening now through necessity and try and make that more of a cultural shift oh i think it's essential we make it a cultural shift um you touched before before on your previous question on on the issue of trust in charities i mean i think we have to remember that trust is a very complicated issue um again coming back to our list of 30 barriers to giving the general mistrust in charities ranks quite low i think it was 18th on the list of 30 factors but um but higher up there are you know specific questions around is my money being used wisely you know is there an accountability framework in in involved um in in the organization that i'm giving to so you know if you start to address the components of trust then you start to build a trusting relationship. And that can only be done on a relationship basis. You can't do it on a transactional basis. So as Matthew says, when an organisation turns to a funder and says that project can't go ahead, can we de-restrict the money and put it to core? It requires a relationship of trust for an individual to say yes to that. So it implies that actually that groundwork is already put in place. But where fundraising is transactional, it's very, very hard to get to that level of um, understanding between the two sides where you could have those kind of details uh, and uh, uh, strategic conversations and I think this goes back to the differences really between giving and philanthropy. Uh, but Kath I wouldn't want us to categorise project-based grants as wrong and core costs as right because actually project-based giving very often means you, people can see exactly how their money's been used in a way that it's harder to do in pure core costs. It's much more accessible to people when they're maybe starting out on giving. And it's only as they build that relationship of trust. So somebody who starts off as a project-based funder may end up as a core cost funder over time when that trust relationship builds up because the trust isn't created instantly. So um, I, I don't think we should regard it one as so much better than the other. What we mustn't have is everybody wanting to give to project and no one giving to core cost. It's the ability to have the conversation about what's appropriate, you know, in a particular circumstance this requires the relationship of trust. Absolutely, yes. And making sure that it doesn't just become a, a default because nobody is, is able to to have that conversation to make the case um, otherwise. Um, I just, I'm aware I'm in danger of keeping both of you too long. It's just a, a couple of other things that I wanted to ask. One, I think, touches on a few different things that have been said so far about um, the, the idea that sort of a lot of philanthropy goes on in this country, but under the radar, and also that philanthropists themselves, I think, sometimes are not aware of, of what other people in their area or their potential peers could be doing. Um, and, you know, a lot of people go on at length about the differences between the culture of philanthropy in the, the UK versus the US. And a lot of that I disagree with quite a lot. But one of the things definitely does seem different to me is, is that sort of cultural openness about philanthropy and it being something that you, you very much do talk about and people are visible and, and they're aware of that. Is that still something that you see as, as a barrier in terms of efforts to build the, the culture here that, that we're just for whatever reason, either sort of cultural Britishness or something else, just not really very willing to be that public about uh, it? I think there is a real cultural issue which we, we have to acknowledge and we can't pretend we'll go away because it's deeply embedded in the British psyche that you don't virtue signal. And uh, very often anybody talking about their philanthropy is perceived as virtue signalling. Now, that's not to say there aren't people who are prepared to stand up and talk about it, 
but there will always be a significant number who won't. And when we go back to the anonymity that Quakers expected in their giving, there's still an element of that culturally, which is why we don't get anything like as much of what you might call vanity philanthropy in the UK as we do in the US. So um, I think we have to acknowledge it. We have to accept that it's there. We have to work with it, encourage people to step forward. But one of the ways in which I think we can address it is by showing what philanthropy does. If you ask a philanthropist to talk about themselves and their giving, they'll normally say no. However, if you ask them to talk about the projects, the activities that they're, and the, the causes that they're supporting, they're passionate to promote those. So I believe the answer to, the, the answer to this issue, this dilemma, is that you focus on the impact that philanthropy has and the philanthropist gets a sort of reflected glory of it, but you don't focus in a sort of prurient way on the individual. I would just add to that, that we've spent quite a bit of time considering these differences and, and actually what is unique to the culture of giving in the UK. And what's unique to the culture here is that philanthropists want to be part of something bigger. They want to be seen as part of an effort pulling together towards a shared goal. Uh, they want to be part of the solution, not, you know, the name that's up front. And that's a very different culture from, from you know, what we see portrayed uh, as, as US philanthropy. And I think there is something that you can work with there. As, as Matthew says, you know, this is about making sure that the philanthropist is in the context. You know, they're part of the, the story. They don't have to be the whole story, but they absolutely want to be part of the story of change and making sure that they're not sidelined or written out or there's this assumption that they want to be anonymous and below the radar. Just acknowledging that their their role in any solution or in any change initiative, acknowledging their role and, and allowing them to be part of it. And often that doesn't happen. Very often, you know, the philanthropist is the person in the room who nobody speaks to because of, you know, either fear or reverence or not quite sure how to approach the, the subject of thank you very much uh, for the money you've helped us to achieve this. And so it's really just making sure that philanthropy is written in as, as, as part of this bigger picture, um, not to take over, but just to, to acknowledge its existence and, and what it does uh, as part of our civil society. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, really interesting point, I think, there. Um, I think I'm, I'm in danger of keeping all of us here too long. So I just want to say, I mean, first of all, thank you ever so much to both of you for finding some time to come on the podcast. But just to give you a chance to for a final thought um, on kind of what you're doing next with Beacon or kind of what it is that you want to, to see happen next to really sort of move forward all these efforts to try and build a, a more of a culture of philanthropy here in the UK. Well, there are a number of things that we're still working up as, as project ideas. We're working on the fellowship. We're working about how we can create diaspora funds in cities around the UK, cities with big challenges to attract back the people who came from those cities to help those cities. I mean, you know, I'm involved in my hometown of Stoke-on-Trent and how we can bring other people who come from a city like that to help it in skills and money and expertise. We're also doing a project to look at how the UK can become a global home uh, a, a home for global philanthropists to base their foundations, which of course would bring skills, employment and a considerable amount of inbound investment. So we think there are a whole number of continuing interconnected actions that we can do with our partners. So um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic because whilst there is no individual 
needle that we can use to say we're achieving our goal, which, by the way, is two billion more per annum of philanthropy, philanthropic giving in the UK. What we can see is a whole number of needles like the CAF giving index and other and HMRC data, all of which seem to indicate that those with the assets are starting to use more and more of them for the public good. So I feel actually much more positive than I did when we founded the Beacon Collaborative two and a half years ago, because I feel the bandwagon is rolling now. And a lot of people will feel uh, very positive about the role that philanthropy can play. But then I'm a born optimist, as Kath knows. I think it's an excellently optimistic note on, on which to leave things. So, um, yeah, just thanks ever so much to both of you for, for coming on. And, you know, as ever with guests, uh, maybe a bit further down the line, um, when you know, some of these things have moved on, we can get you back on and sort of see see how things have progressed. Thanks, Rodri. Thanks, Rodri. Thank you. Okay, well, my thanks again to Matthew and for Kath for finding the time to come on the podcast. It's great to have a chance to chat to both of them. I'll put some links in the show notes to various things that we discussed. Um, if you're interested more broadly in issues around philanthropy and civil society of the kind we were talking about, do check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis or at Philiteracy. Uh, if you want stuff that's more about kind of the academic and research and and uh, and kind of history side of philanthropy, drop us a line at givingthought@cafonline.org. If you've got ideas for topics we could cover on the podcast or people that I could talk to in the future, other than that, uh, just like, subscribe, tell all your friends about it, give us a nice review wherever it is you get your podcasts because I'm sure that always helps. Uh, and we will see you next time. Bye. <laughs>